All right. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 18, where we're going to be looking at a very famous passage and one that is just so tempting to camp out on for a long time. As I was preparing this sermon, I kept adding things and saying, oh, my sermon's too big. So I cut it down. I kept adding and chopping, and then it just ended up like it was to begin with. But um, uh, the story is of the rich young ruler and uh, Jesus has some really amazing things. And when you study it, you learn things about the story that you don't really get upon first glance. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, you discover there are rich people like Abraham or David or Zacchaeus that we will be encountering in Luke 19 who are very wealthy and yet they were believers and they will be in heaven with us. Uh, but Wealth a lot of times uh, can't help certain people um, just uh, avoid certain trappings. It it is irresistible for some people who have great wealth to just stay away from those worldly things that God hates. And a lot of times, uh, though you can purchase Bibles and support missionaries and, uh, and maybe, uh, go to seminary and, you know, buy good books to read and music to listen to, um, those who have great wealth a lot of times are just drawn into things that captivate them and they often become proud and trust in their riches above God. It is very difficult for somebody with great riches to be humble and to trust in the Lord and to use their riches for his glory. Usually if they have an abundance, they want more. They want to increase their empire, their holdings, their net value. And uh, very few of them are able to have much and use much for the glory of God. As we've been working our way through Luke chapter 18, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem and he is, uh, Luke has assembled different little stories and parables and they all have a common thread. That common thread is heaven, how to get to heaven or how not to get to heaven in the case of our story this morning. Uh, the previous story, Jesus talked about the little children. Uh, the kingdom of heaven belongs to little ones such as these because little children are trusting. They rely upon the Lord. They are very careful to just do what their parents say. They don't know any better. And so they have this complete, honest trust um, and hope that their parents are going to take care of them. Well, if being like a child is how to get into the kingdom of heaven, the story before us this morning teaches us how not to get into the kingdom of heaven. It is kind of a sad story um, at the beginning, uh, but it gets good at the very end. It's kind of like reading the book of Revelation, if you've ever done that. I remember one time deciding I was going to read a chapter to my wife every night as we were going to bed. And, and, uh, and you know, after several nights of judgment and, you know, uh, fire and a third of the earth's population dying, you know, towards the end of the book, it's pretty sobering and woesome. But it gets really good at the end. And that's how this story is before us today. Christians, uh, a lot of times are deceived into thinking that their money really makes no difference, but it is a huge topic in the scripture. It's a topic that we need to consider and God mentions and talks about it a lot in his word. Jesus talked about it a lot, um, in his earthly ministry. 
In Jesus' day, just as in our day, many felt like they were going to heaven because they had wealth. Many felt like they were going to heaven and they wanted to escape hell. They wanted to be right with God. They wanted to do those things that pleased God so they could escape the judgment they knew they deserved. Just like as many Christians or professing Christians today will come to church and, and they will read their Bible and kind of go through the basic motions of Christianity. But many of them don't know Christ. They say they do. They think they're Christians. But Jesus says that many in that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, have we not? And they, they talk about the good deeds they've done, incredible deeds, as a matter of fact. And then they hear those terrifying words, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. I mean, imagine that. Imagine knowing Jesus is Lord, calling him Lord, calling him your Lord, working in the church for what you think is his glory, only to get to heaven to discover that he is going to reject you because you have not known him. Well, the story before us this morning is one of those terrible, sobering stories of a man who got a hair's breadth away from heaven and then walked away. We don't know if he ever came to Christ after this or not, but the end of the story is he walked away. And so please follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 27. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, the one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Please pray with me. Father, we want to ask you to help us understand this text. We want you to help us apply this text. We realize that all we have is from you, that nothing that we have has not been first given to us. We are not to trust in those things, rely upon those things. You give us things to be stewards of, not to hope in or to idolize. Father, we want to use our wealth for your glory and we don't want things to get into the way of our salvation. Father, I pray that as we look at this text this morning, a text of a man who walked away from his own salvation, that we would examine our own hearts that we would look deep within us and your Holy Spirit would move through your word, that each of us would leave here not merely with a story in our minds, but, Father, would change lives and moved hearts. And, Father, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. From this narrative, I want to show you six facts that, if heeded, will help you navigate your way to heaven. 
avoid a perilous pitfall and gain assurance concerning your own true spiritual state. And the first is a question you should ask. Look at verse 18. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Mark in his gospel, this this story appears both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, so both the other what are called the synoptic gospels have it. And so it's an important story because it appears three times and and mark tells us that jesus was just getting ready to set out on a journey so in other words jesus is in the village and he's getting ready to head on to the next place and as he's getting ready to to head out mark also tells us that this this young rich ruler that we piece together from all three comes running up to him and so you can tell he's young because he's running you know uh, when you're a young man you run everywhere because walking's just way too slow and so he runs up to jesus and he's breathing hard and he says good teacher what must i do to inherit eternal life so this is the situation it's really the same question that the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, asked Jesus, remember that, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, he quotes the two great commandments, love God and love your neighbor. And the man realizes, I think, that he hasn't been loving his neighbor like he should. And so he then tries to justify himself and say, well, then, but who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the parable of who is my neighbor, more commonly known as the parable of the Good Samaritan, to teach him that anyone in need that you are, you can help is your neighbor. And so as we come here, the rich young ruler refers to Jesus as good teacher, a pretty unique uh, title which uh, is pretty much uh, unfound in, in all the rabbinical writings. And he asked the question of all questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know about you, but I've only had a few times when people just out of the blue have asked me that. It's, it's kind of like gospel t-ball. You know, usually you're thinking, okay, I need to witness this guy. Okay, how am I going to break in? How am I going to talk to the guy? You know, so how about the Mets? And so, oh, yeah, it's fine. And how about Jesus? Um, you know, you're trying to get it around so you can talk to him about the gospel. Like, you ever think about God? And it's pretty easy for me because I just say I'm a pastor and they go, oh, he's probably going to get religious and I try not to disappoint him. <laughs> but you know how it is. Sometimes you... Sometimes you're, you, you, you're thinking, okay, I'm on this plane, I'm sitting next to this person, and I just really want to sleep, or I want to read this book, or, you know, whatever, and this person's there, and you don't know them, and they don't know you, and you're trying to break in. Well, this is one of those situations where somebody runs up to Jesus and puts the ball on the tee and says, how can I inherit eternal life so Jesus can just whack it out of the park? It's 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 the question of all questions, and I wish more people asked this question, but... What we're finding out in America is that a lot of people don't have this question. They don't even care to ask it. They're not even interested. Most of them don't even believe in eternal life. They've bought the lie of evolution and think they're going to die and disappear into nothing. Most are only concerned about today and pleasure and making money so they can have things, so they can make more money and have things and die, whatever. It's pretty sad. They play right into Satan's hand who wants to distract them with the things of the world and deceive them with lies so they don't wake up to the reality of things until they're in hell and their eternal future is unalterable. You know, a teenager thinks they're going to live a long time. You know, you can talk to teenagers and all of them think they're going to live a long time. They think, well, yeah, you know, how long do you think you're going to live? Ah, 70, 80 years, I don't know. 
And one of those same teenagers can be riding their bike and get hit by a car and be in hell for eternity. You know, a businessman at the top of his game, you know, who's making money hand over fist, all of a sudden drops dead at a lunch meeting from a heart attack and finds himself in hell. Some, some housewife who's gone to a liberal church and, and she has spent her life loving her kids, being very moral and teaching them to be upright and, and going through the motions and loving her husband. And now she's 98 years old and she dies and finds out she's on her way to hell. And this is, these are realities. The scriptures teach this reality. The way is narrow. It's a tight fit. And it's especially tight fit for the rich, as we're going to find out. Many people are unconcerned about asking that most important question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And the question is, have you asked it? And have you found the answer? You can find a lot of answers. There's a lot of cults out there. There's a lot of people out there who will tell you that their way is the right way. But the fact is, there's only one right way. And that is Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And so the rich young ruler, we have to applaud him for his eagerness, his tenacity, his ambition, and for asking the most important question that all of us need to be asking, how can I inherit eternal life? Secondly... There's a reality here that you should admit to. Look at verse 19. Remember, he just called Jesus good teacher. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, just think about that statement. That is kind of an interesting response, isn't it? Because, you know, we know Jesus is God. He's the sinless one. And so you might be thinking, well, since Jesus is sinless and since Jesus is God, then he's good, right? So why does he say that? Why does he say, well, thank you, or just not say anything? Why does he say, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. G. Campbell Morgan laments that many interpreters miss what is going on here. He says that Jesus, quote, meant one of two things. He either meant I'm not good or he meant I'm God, end quote. And that's exactly right. Either Jesus is saying, I'm not good, or he's saying I'm God. Now, remember, the the rich young ruler just asks, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the first important thing. You need to know that I'm God. That is one of the cardinal things you need to know to be saved, that Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is the Messiah. The Messiah is God become man. Many who have been deceived that Jesus is not God will perish in hell for eternity. There are many cults who deny the deity of Christ. And and you know, if you've studied the cults at all, that pretty much all you got to do is go to Jesus and you find out they're broken there. Because that's the one thing Satan knows. If he can get somebody to believe in a Jesus that isn't the real Jesus, he can damn them to hell, thinking they're on their way to heaven. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, 24, made it clear when he said, therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And when he says, I am there, he's talking about the I am the Lord, what is referred to in the Hebrew, the Yahweh Yodhe, as the ineffable tetragrammaton, the unutterable four-letter name. And that's why it, when you read your Old Testament, you'll see it, Lord, in all caps, that appears there. 
He says, unless you believe that I am the eternally existing one, you're going to die in your sins. And then he goes on in verse 58 to make that crystal clear because he says, and before Abraham was born, I am. And so if you deny the deity of Christ, you can't get to heaven. So the first thing he wants the rich young Mueller to realize is who he is. I am the I am. Then secondly, think think about this. He tells the rich young ruler, no one is good but God alone. So what does that make the rich young ruler? Bad, sinful. If only God is holy, then what does that make the rich young ruler? Sinful. That's another thing you need to learn if you're going to be saved. You need to know who Jesus is, that he is God incarnate, and you also need to know that you are a sinner. Yeah. Yes, we may be good in society's eyes, but compared to God, who is infinitely holy, we're not good at all. There are none righteous, no, not even one. We might even remember that Paul said, well, didn't, didn't Paul say, though, that uh, that in Philippians chapter 3, that he... Uh, according to the law of Moses, was blameless. Well, yes, but surely that is Paul's estimation of himself in his delusion before he got saved. Because all the way through the New Testament, in his books, he talks about he's the chief of sinners and the foremost of sinners. And and he talks about how sinful he is in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. Remember when he talks about coveting? He says, man, as soon as the law came and it said, thou shalt not covet, there was this like principle in me. There was this drive in me to covet everything I could. He says, man, I just, sin just sprang up in me. And I was just like a field of, of sin. And pretty soon I realized, man, I, I deserve to die. So Paul wasn't deluded that into thinking he was sinless. Yes, when he was a Pharisee, he was deceived, just like this rich young ruler. But after he came to Christ, he saw things all too clearly. Paul was no perfect law keeper. He was like the rich young ruler deceived into thinking he was righteous. So we must consider all of us who Jesus is come to believe he's God. And secondly, we need to realize that since only God is good, that makes all of us sinners in need of salvation. Third, there's an impossible standard you can't keep. Jesus knows the rich young ruler is self-righteous and has an idol he worships. And contrary to what we might expect, he throws out something really kind of shocking, especially for us, you know, who are familiar with the New Testament and the writings of Paul. You, you would think that Jesus say, okay, you want to inherit eternal life. This is all you need to do. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, that is it, right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. And you say, well, why doesn't he do that? Because first of all, he didn't get the first hint that he was God and didn't get the second hint that he was bad. And so the rich young ruler is not quite connecting. And Jesus is trying to bring him to a place where he sees he's a sinner in comparison with a good and holy God so that he needs salvation. Because Jesus only came to save sinners. And so Jesus then says this. Look at uh, verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. 
Jesus rattles off five of the Ten Commandments that relate to loving your neighbor. If you've ever studied the Ten Commandments, the first four relate to loving God directly. The last six relate to loving God indirectly by loving your neighbor. So he rattles off five of those. Matthew's account tells us Jesus also included the command to love your neighbor as yourself. And Mark's account also says he said, do not defraud. So all of these commands relate to loving your neighbor. And what's really interesting, Jesus left off the the command, thou shalt not covet, which is certainly this man's problem. So why does he do this? Why does he do this? Why does he rattle off these commands? Because he's trying to get the rich young ruler to go, oh, yeah, you know. You know, I've done pretty good on those, but I haven't kept those perfectly. I guess that does make me a sinner. And Jesus could say, well, if you believe in me, your sins are forgiven. But look at verse 21. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? Think about that. Yeah, yeah, from, from my earliest days, I learned the commandments. I've, I've kept them perfectly. Really? Yeah, yeah, that was a little task, but you know, I got through it. I'm doing good. I mean, he's like the Pharisee in the previous story who, who stood up and said, God, I am so thankful I'm not like this wretched tax collector. Henry Ironside said, quote, certainly there is nothing to be said against his moral character, but his life had been a selfish life and he had vast possessions. He had great riches and men and women were living in poverty all about him. Yet he continued to go on as he was and did not realize that God had entrusted him with his wealth, that he might use it for him. If God entrusts wealth to you, he makes you a steward and you are to be, you are to use your riches to the glory of God and the blessing of mankind. End quote. The rich young ruler doesn't realize he just said he kept a standard impossible for anybody to keep. He's actually saying, I'm good like God is. Listen, until a person sees themselves as a helpless, hopeless sinner in need of salvation, they can't be saved. So Jesus now has attempted three times to get this rich young ruler to see important facts that are necessary for his salvation. Jesus is God incarnate, the Messiah. He is a sinner. Didn't work. Let's try the commandment route. How about loving your neighbor commands? Let's throw them out there. Oh, yeah, I've done all those. So then Jesus decides now he's going to go after the guy's idol. Our third point, our fourth point, an idol you should avoid. Look at verse 22. Where Jesus gives the rich young ruler the first task he must do. Remember, he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think the guy's honest. I mean, I think he's got very good intentions. He wants, he's got, he's, I mean, he's young. He's young. He's ambitious. He's got money. He's got power. He's got influence. It's like, you know, what do you want me to do? You know, start an orphanage? What do you want me to do? What task do you want me to do? You want me to give some money? You want me to build a synagogue? You know, I'm willing to sacrifice quite a bit. I've got, I've got means. I've got stuff. You know, what do I need to pay? What can I do to make sure I've paid my dues to get into heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
So then Jesus just says, okay, one thing you still lack after he says, oh, yeah, I've kept all the commandments. And there's a bit of irony here. Okay, just one little thing. One little thing. And I'm sure the rich young ruler was very excited at this point. He's like, oh, yeah. What is it, man? I'm doing it. Look at the middle of verse 22. Jesus says, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. This must have hit that rich young ruler like a bolt of lightning out of a clear blue sky. He was phenomenally wealthy. And surely he was thinking, part with all my money? Sell all my possessions? Give it all away to the poor? You've got to be kidding. He just, no, I mean, come on. I'm willing to do quite a bit to get my salvation acquired. But you're asking way, way too much here. Listen, he needed to sell all and buy the field with the hidden treasure. He needed to sell all to acquire the pearl of great price. He needed to realize that this world is passing away and all its stuff. And that there is no profit in gaining the whole world and then losing your soul. But Jesus wasn't through with him. Look at the end of verse 22. He says, not only do you have to part with all your riches, sell and give to the poor. Jesus says, and come and follow me. Not only I want you to sell all your stuff, which require you to lose your position, lose your power, lose your influence among your money loving friends. But since you're not going to have a house anymore to live in, I want you to leave all your friends in your hometown and come follow me. It is a brilliant stroke by Jesus. He is not, as you might think, upon first glance teaching that salvation is by, you know, having a vow of poverty. That's not it at all. He's trying to get the rich young ruler to see that he's got an idol in his life. The commandments didn't work. So he's trying to say, okay, there's something between you and God. There's something that comes before God in your life. And that is your wealth. And so what I want you to do is I want you to part with all that. And he's trying to get him to see in his own mind. Oh, I do love my riches more than God. And if he could just come to that place, Jesus could then give him the good news. If you step back from the text a bit and you say, what is Jesus really asking the guy? I mean, what does he what does he really want from him? Well, think about it. Believe in who I am and turn from your idol. Repent and believe. That's what he, that's all he's asking him. He's still trying to get, answer his question. But the guy can't see his sin. He can't see who Jesus is. And so he can't be saved. Look at verse 23. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich matthew and mark tell us he went away grieving for he owned much property and you just need to see him here 
You need to see him as he turns his back on Jesus, the savior of the world, and he walks away from Christ. He was eager moments ago. He was willing to sacrifice moments ago. He wanted to get into heaven moments ago. He asked the most important question anybody could ask moments ago. And now he has turned his back on the Savior and he's walking away because he won't part with his idol. There are many professing Christians in the church today who are just like this rich young ruler. And you know, we encounter them. We encounter them. The pastors encounter them. Maybe you do too. Well, they have problems, they have issues. We talk to them and say, listen, pal, this is the gospel. This is what you need to do. You need to turn from your immorality. You need to move out, quit shacking up with your girlfriend. And a lot of times you can see in their mind like, whoa, I can't do that. And they turn away. Sometimes it's, you know what? Your job is wicked. You need to quit your job and find a new one. Well, but it pays really good. You got to turn on that thing. And and they're they're like this rich young ruler. They just they can't do it. They want eternal life. They're actually in the office. They, I mean, it's great. They come for a t ball session, you know, to hear the gospel. They know we're going to get religious on them, and we don't we don't disappoint them. You know, we're pastors. We do religion. You know, you tell them about Jesus. So how about Jesus? You know, I mean, that's what we do. But some of them just, they don't want to part with their, their power. They don't want to part with their lust. They don't want to part with their possessions. They don't want to, there's something in their life. And right now you may be sitting out there and you may be thinking, I know what it is in my life. I'm sure some of you are thinking that right now. I know what's between me and God. You need to get rid of that. You need to turn from that. Are you going to let that thing damn you to hell forever because you won't turn from it? Is it really going to be worth that much in the long run that you would put your eternal soul at risk because of whatever it is you're thinking about? J.C. Ryle says of the rich young ruler and those like him, quote, St. Paul and his companions aboard the ship. Like St. Paul and his companions aboard the ship, he must throw over his cargo if he is to save his life. End quote. Speaking of when they got shipwrecked on Malta, that's exactly how it is. When you come to Christ, you got to be willing to pitch all overboard. What the irony of it is, is if Jesus knows you're willing to give it all, he says, well, leave it on deck. You know, unless it's sinful. But sometimes he even says, give it all. Because he knows it's an idol to you. And he knows you won't part with it. Are you willing to do that? Get rid of the cargo on your deck that's keeping you from coming to Christ. You need to cast it overboard. You need to turn from it all. You need to let nothing stand in your way. We talked about the text earlier before about John the Baptist when Jesus is describing him and says, you know, of those born of women, there has never risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you remember what he said after that? For the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And thinking, what is that? People who are willing to pitch all overboard to follow Christ, to sell all, to get the field, to get the pearl, to get Jesus. Whatever it takes, Lord. And you know what? You find that every Christian come to a place like this in their life where it's just like, I don't care. I don't care. 
Thomas Watson in his book, Heaven Taken by Storm, says, listen, if your greatest friend should get in your way in your pursuit of heaven, you must either jump over them or trample them underfoot. You don't let anything get in your way. Heaven is the most important thing. And that's why Jesus keeps talking about it over and over and over again. And for this rich young man, it was money. Money was in the way and it had to go. Hebrews 13.5 says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Jesus, knowing that the rich young ruler's money was kind of like Achan's wedge of gold. And it was a wedge between him and God. Beware of the idol of money. It is so so deceptive so many people will not part with their money they'll do good deeds they will do a little bit for god but their money is the first and foremost to god in their life paul says in first timothy six ten, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many uh, griefs literally they impel themselves it's like you know picture in your mind a big wooden stake with a sharp point on it, me just jumping on it that's how it is people see riches and pretty soon they get more riches and they start finding the power of riches and the pleasures that riches can guide and they just jump on it they impale themselves when they fall in love with it. And that's what's happened to many in the world today. That's what happened to the rich young ruler. And he turned his back on the Savior and walked away. And what's interesting is, and I think it's Mark's account, says that Jesus watched him walk away. This brings us to the fifth point of truth you should deny. Look at verse 24. And Jesus looked at him. We know as he was walking away and he said, and we know from the other gospels, he's talking to his disciples, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. You know, compared to the rest of the world, almost everyone in America is rich. We have so much abundance here. We don't even know what poverty is. That's why everybody needs to go on a short term missions trip to some third world country to get your act together. I mean, you start seeing four people shacking up in a literally a tin dirt floor shack with no running water or electricity, and they're happy and they're singing hymns in front of their house. It's a whole wake-up call. You know, Southern California is an expensive place to live, and, you know, if you would take what it costs to live here and move somewhere else, you could live like a king. But I think Jesus is not talking about general wealth in comparison to the world, but wealth comparison to the culture you live in. I think he's talking about those with great wealth. Those would be the people with the big businesses and the huge property holdings and just have a lot of wealth. And Jesus says of them how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives a little comparison. You know, you know how hard it is? It's like trying to stuff a camel, verse 25 says, through the eye of a needle. Now, some people, I think rich people, have tried to interpret that. Well, that's the needle gate. No, no. The word for camel means camel in the Greek. And the word for needle means needle. And you know what? When you get to the humps on the camel, it's exceedingly difficult to get them through the rest of the way. 
Now you think it out there saying, well, that's it. It's it. I think, well, that's impossible. That's, that's, that is the whole point. It's impossible for a rich person to try and purchase, gain, do philanthropy to get themselves in the kingdom of God. You can't do it. As a matter of fact, no one can. Even if you're dirt poor, you can't do anything to gain eternal life. Ryle writes, quote, riches incline people to pride, self-will, self-indulgence, and love of the world. For another thing, the rich man seldom sees his soul as it is in reality. He is surrounded by people flattering him and fawning on him. Few people have the courage to tell him the whole truth. His good points are greatly exaggerated. His bad points are glossed over with excuses. The results of his heart being choked with the worldly things while his eyes are blind to his own real condition. Why are we surprised that so few rich people find salvation end quote i have had people i have had people tell me listen you know i want to do this or i want to do that i want you to let me do this people with a lot of wealth and i just tell them no and then they leave i had somebody offer me three hundred thousand dollars that they could do a little thing in the church i said no so they went and gave it to a liberal church There are people who have money and they want to use their money to control things, to intimidate people. And then there's too many pastors who are sitting there going, I better not. I know he doesn't believe in predestination. If I do, I'll probably get mad and leave the church. Maybe I should just skip over that verse. And then the fear of men brings the snare. The fact is, it's not only impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, it's impossible for anyone on their own, apart from Christ, to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to come poor, blind, naked, destitute, realizing that you are a hopeless, helpless sinner. It's the only way you can get in. No one else gets in any other way. Just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me. You come without one plea. Nothing in your hand you bring. Simply to the cross you cling. And so you need to ask yourself, are you trusting in your riches? Are you trusting in your intelligence? Are you trusting in your parents? Are you trusting in your heritage? Are you trusting in your church attendance, your Bible reading, your service, your philanthropy? Nothing will do. You're a sinner, and Christ is the Savior. And that's all that matters. Six, a hope that you should cling to. Look at verse 26. And they who heard it, the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? Now, what's going on here? Well, in that culture, it went like this. They had a little retribution theology going on. The retribution theology is, is if your life is good and you're healthy, then God likes you. And if you're poor and destitute, obviously you've sinned. And so what happens is, is they say, well, everything we have is given to us by God. Therefore, if I have a lot, God obviously likes me because he's given me a lot. Therefore, the rich people are just a shoe in to the kingdom of heaven because look at how much they have. That is why the Pharisees worked so hard to accumulate wealth and devoured widows' houses and did things like they put all, they said, they told everybody, everything that I have belongs to the Lord. Why did they say that? So they didn't have to honor their parents and take care of their parents in their old age. They let their parents starve so they could keep a lot of wealth so people would look at them as blessed by God. Think about that. And so when Jesus says how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven, the disciples are going, really? And then what he says, it's like trying to pass a camel through the eye of a needle. And they're 
You're kidding me. Well, then, if that's the case, who can be saved? I mean, if the wealthy people can't get saved, who can be saved? Mark's account says they were very or, 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 or astonished, but Matthew's account says they were very astonished. They're just like, you're kidding me. It just strikes them. And to us, we probably think, well, that's not a big deal. That seems pretty clear. But to them and that culture, man, it's like, listen, if you're rich, man, God is blessing you. It's like the, it's like a visual indicator that you are on your way. And Jesus has rolled out the carpet for you, man. You're walking right into heaven. Jesus then tells them the exact opposite and they're just shocked. But as sad and astonishing as it is, that it is impossible for rich and the powerful to purchase their way into heaven. Look at verse 27, where Jesus gives us an incredible word of hope. But he says, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Isn't that great? The resources of the rich are insufficient to atone for their sins. They can't buy their justification. They can't buy forgiveness. They can't sanctify themselves. They need to come empty-handed, clinging to the cross, asking for grace, and God will save them. It doesn't matter how much you have sinned. It doesn't matter how many idols you are or have worshipped. It doesn't matter how many sins you've committed. Christ will forgive you right now if you come to him in faith. Like the song we said, our God is mighty to save. He is forever the author of salvation. He is mighty to save. Some people think, oh, but Pastor Hughes, I come to church not because I think I can ever get to heaven, but because I like hearing the encouraging words and being around the nice people, but I know that for me, it can't happen. You you have no idea of what I've done. I have sinned in such scary ways. I don't even want to tell you. I just tell them, that is Satan lying to you. Your sins are not greater than God's grace. Listen, one of the most godly kings of Israel who ever lived was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the godliest kings who ever lived reigned in Israel and he was on the verge of death and he was going to die and he begged God I don't want to die please don't let me die and so God says okay I'm going to let you live 15 more years and then right after that he had a son Manasseh Manasseh became the most wicked king in all of Israel's history and listen to what second Kings 21 Verses 2 through 9 says about him, He did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations of the Lord, dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made it Asherah, and as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. And he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the due courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire. What that means is he worshipped Molech's and he threw his babies onto the fire as sacrifices. He practiced witchcraft and used divination and dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil on the side of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 
Then he set the carved images, Asherah, that he had made in the house of which the Lord had said to David and Solomon, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander anymore from the land which I gave to their fathers. If only they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded, but he did not listen and Manasseh seduced them to do evil, more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the sons of Israel. Whoa, you're talking evil. That guy, he didn't just worship an idol. He brought the whole collection of them into the temple and then he seduced the people into worshiping them he led the whole nation into sin and you just might think to yourself well (laughs) that guy's going to be fuel for the fires of hell there is no hope for him listen second chronicles 33 describes how the Assyrians captured Manasseh, bound him with bronze chains and took him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. If you know Christ, when you get to heaven, you're going to see Manasseh, the most wicked king that ever lived in heaven by God's grace. I know you haven't sinned that bad. God will save you. Jesus paid it all. All to him you owe. Sin has left its crimson stain, but he's washed it white as snow. And he will wash your, your sins away too. His atonement is sufficient. Ryle warns, quote, let us beware of supposing that our own salvation is impossible because of the hardness of our position. It is too often suggested from the devil and from our own lazy hearts. We must not give way to it. It does not matter where we live so long as we are not following a sinful calling. It does not matter what our income is, whether we are burdened with riches or pinched with poverty. Grace and not place is the thing on which our salvation turns. Money will not keep us out of heaven if our hearts are right before God. Christ can make us more than conquerors. Christ can enable us to win our way through every difficulty. You need to believe that. It's true. It's true. Paul writes to you who think that maybe salvation is out of reach. And he says this. Romans 10 verses 8 and following. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's what the scriptures say. He says, for with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Are you whoever? Yeah. So believe in him and do not be disappointed. There is no distinction, he says, between the Jew and the Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that is you. That is you. 
Don't let your sin, don't let your money, don't let your idol get in the way of you and eternal life. Christ will forgive you. He wants to forgive you. He invites to forgive you. He commands you to repent and believe in him. And if you do, you will be saved. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, that person will be saved. It is a lie. It is a lie from Satan that you're too sinful to be saved. He will save you. He will change you. He will adopt you. He will wash you whiter than snow. He will bring you into a heaven. He will give you what the rich young Euler walked away from, eternal life. The things that are impossible for men are possible with God. So turn from your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us in this story. Father, how we all need to be reminded and all need to hear these truths. That if we aren't careful, idols can get in the way between us and our Savior. That trusting in our own resources, Father, our riches, our things, trusting in relationships, trusting in intellect, trusting in position or power or history. Father, nothing, nothing saves but faith in Christ and Christ alone. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. May they call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Save them, Lord, as only you can. And for the rest of us, may we never doubt that your gospel and your grace is sufficient to save all sinners and that no one can sin beyond your reach. We thank you and praise you for saving us because we know we are sinners. In Christ's name, amen. The song that we sang together earlier, Prepare to Place for Me, we're going to